and all the people without children are wondering, why are all these people bawling around me right now, right? Good grief, pull it together. Uh, my wife sent me that video several months ago. It was kind of making its rounds on social media and specifically Facebook and being the good husband that I am. I never watched it. Uh, then when we were planning the service, the thought popped into my mind, what was that video that my wife was badgering me about, telling me I really ought to watch? It maybe seems like a good fit for this. And so I dug it up. I finally did watch it. I may or may not have cried just a little bit. And then I brought it to our creative team, the team of people that, that planned these services. And we all agreed that it was a perfect fit. And then I took all of the credit. And that pretty much is how it always works. It reminds me of that old proverb that hopefully you're familiar with, that behind every good husband and father is a man plagiarizing ideas from his wife. <laughs> Y'all remember who said that? I said that. I made it up. But it's pretty, uh, pretty accurate. We're continuing in this series today that uh, you can see that we're having a lot of fun with here during this month of July called At The Movies. And what At The Movies is all about is taking a look at some of our favorite films and hopefully bringing them to life in a way that you have never experienced before. And today, uh, as you probably gathered, we're going to be touching on this subject of, of parenting, of families, of, of relationships. And we thought, well, we probably ought to pick one of those movies that our, our kids have probably all seen at least 30 times. Yes, I let my kids watch television. I know I am failing as a parent. And there she was. Hello. Riley. Aren't you a little bundle of joy? Riley and me forever. Well, for 33 seconds. I'm sadness. Oh, hello. I, I'm joy. So, can I just, if you could, I just want to fix that. <laughs> Thanks. And that was just the beginning. Headquarters only got more crowded from there. Very nice. Okay, looks like you got this. Very good. Oh, that's right, parent. Oh, look out! That's fear. He's really good at keeping Riley safe. Easy, easy, huh? Hi, back! Oh, we're good. We're good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're back. Here we go. All right, open. Hmm, this looks new. Think it's safe? What is it? Okay, caution. There is a dangerous smell, people. Hold on, what is that? This is disgust. She basically keeps Riley from being poisoned, physically and socially. That is not brightly colored or shaped like a dinosaur. Hold on, guys. It's broccoli! <laughs> well, I just saved our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. Riley, if you don't eat your dinner, you're not gonna get any dessert. Wait, did he just say we couldn't have dessert? That's anger. He cares very deeply about things being fair. So that's how you want to play it, old man? No dessert? Oh, sure. We'll eat our dinner right after you eat this. Ah! Right, right. Here comes an airplane. Ah! Oh, airplane. We got an airplane, everybody. <gasps> Inside Out, it's a crowd favorite, right? 
Now, before we, we really kind of dive into this today, I, I want to let you all in on some of the tensions that, that were floating around in, in my head as I was writing, as I was preparing this, this message this week. Um, I'm not just saying this for hyperbole. This was one of the most difficult, uh, intimidating, challenging messages that, that I have ever written. Uh, there was a lot of stress, honestly, and anxiety leading up to the moment where I was actually going to sit down and write this message. And I think there were maybe a number of reasons, and a number of tensions that were contributing to that. Uh, n- number one, and, and most importantly, um, I don't really think I know all that much about parenting. I, I just don't. I, I'm certainly not an, an expert on, on the subject. And in fact, in our household, and I would suspect that this is a case in a lot of households, if, if we were willing to admit it, my wife does about 95% of the parenting. And even that might be even a little bit conservative. And so if that's how we were going to go about this, that somebody was going to stand up here and you know, tell you all about parenting, my wife should be standing here and I should be like in the corner eating a bowl of cereal. Uh, number two, Let's point out the obvious. There's a lot of you that are sitting here today that are not parents. And and we don't really want to dive into and and, and dedicate an entire Sunday to a subject that that doesn't really relate or pertain to about half the people that are sitting here. Uh, Three, pretty much every single person that that is listening to me right now has more experience than I do because, again, my oldest child is three. Three. Check back with me in about 15 years and we will let you know how I did as a parent. So it seems reckless that you would therefore just kind of listen and, and take all of my advice on the subject by sheer experience. Probably a lot of you know a little bit more. And then, oh, don't let me forget, the, the only commonality that I could find on this subject, literally the only piece of common ground, and I thought long and hard about this, like, okay, what's that piece of common ground amongst parents, not parents, single, married, in a relationship? What's that one piece of common ground that I could find uh, amongst everyone? And the only thing that I could come up with was that you're an expert on parenting and 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 you're an expert on parenting. You're definitely an expert on parenting despite the fact that you've never spent more than 15 minutes with a kid, but you're definitely an expert on parenting. We are all experts in our own minds and and here's how I know this to be true and here's why I, I think so strongly of that because haven't all of you been in a restaurant before when a child is having a meltdown and you start shooting looks to the person next to you like, I wish this kid would just pull it together. What is wrong with that parent? Get that kid in line. Or you've thought in other moments, oh my gosh, they are seriously going to let their kid play with that phone for the entire meal? No wonder our society doesn't understand family anymore. Are, are, are you kidding me? That They are going to let their kids eat, I, I can't even say it, they're going to let their kids eat fa- fast food, not not one, but two days in a row, enjoy the type two diabetes. Oh my goodness, you spank your kids? You spank your kids? How, how long have you been worshiping Satan again? Uh, you don't spank your kids? No wonder your kids are so out of control. You know what to do, obviously, because you're an expert and they do not. Something is definitely going on. She's never acted like this before. What should we do? We're gonna find out what's happening but will need support. Signal the husband. Ahem. Uh-oh, she's looking at us. Uh, what did she say? What? Oh, oh, sorry, sir. No one was listening. Is it garbage night? Uh, we left the toilet seat up. What? What is it, woman? What? Uh, he's making that stupid face again. I could strangle him right now. Signal him again. Ah, so, Riley, how was school? Oh, oh, you kidding me? For this, we gave up that Brazilian helicopter pilot? Boo, I'll be joy. School was great, all right? Riley, is everything okay? 
<sighs> Sir, she just rolled her eyes at us. What is her deal? All right, make a show of force. I don't want to have to put the foot down. No, not the foot. Riley, I do not like this new attitude. Oh, I'll show you attitude over No, 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 stay happy! What is your problem? Just leave me alone. Sir, reporting high levels of sass. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen? DEFCON 2. Listen, young lady, I don't know where this disrespectful attitude came from. You want a piece of this, Pops? Come and get it! Yeah, well, well... Here it comes. Prepare the foot. Keys to safety position. Ready to launch on your command, sir. That's it. Go to your room. Now. Foot is down. The foot is down. Good job, gentlemen. That could have been a disaster. Well, that was a disaster. We all would have handled that situation better, right? Because we are experts in our own minds. So, so all of that, again, if I'm just being vulnerable, all of that kind of seems stacked against me this week. But, but then I got this boost of confidence because I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am the pastor. I don't know if you notice when I get up here, but it says lead pastor. So I thought, all right, I know what I could do. I know a little bit about this book that we refer to as the Bible. And so maybe I, I could delve into the pages of the Bible and, and pass on all the advice that we find within those pages. I mean, right, like that would seem like a good route to take. But turns out that really wasn't that much help either. Because uh, have any of you uh, recently kind of dove into the Old Testament it's not exactly this model of what you would call a perfect family. It starts out with Adam and Eve, two people that most of you are probably familiar with, the first two people on earth, and that went well for about five minutes, right? And then they're pointing the finger at each other. No, he told me to do it. No, she told me. You know, it's back and forth, and that kind of dissolves. And then we have these biblical heroes, these people that we really look up to, people like Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham, almost the forefather of our faith. But let us not forget that at one point, Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, like nice parenting Abraham. We have brothers like Cain and Abel, and all brothers and siblings have conflicts with one another. But again, Cain at one point murdered Abel, so that didn't turn out very well. But we can fast forward a little bit more maybe, and we, we can look at people like King David, right? King David is one of the greatest kings to have ever lived throughout the history of the world. Surely he got this whole family and, and parenting thing right. But the problem is, as you dive a little bit into King David's life and you figure out that at one point in his life, he had an affair and he ended up getting the woman pregnant. And then in an effort to cover all of this up, he ends up having the husband of his mistress murdered. But his son, surely his son Solomon, one of the wisest people to have ever lived, surely he got it together. He learned from his father's mistakes. Well, you do a quick little bit of research on Solomon and you figure out that he had a little bit of a lady problem. It's estimated that he had seven hundred wives and 300 concubines. The only thing I think of is like, maybe he was just trying to get to an even thousand. Like that made sense in his life. But that's sort of the New Testament, right? So we kind of leave the Old Testament, all right? Not, not a lot of great stuff there. Well, let's go to the New Testament, right? Like definitely there has to be some good parenting, some good family advice within the pages of the New Testament. And I thought, man, maybe we could look at Mary and Joseph, right? I mean, they after all raised Jesus. They raised the Son of God. So definitely they got some things right. But the problem is, as any of you that have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, those four books that document Jesus's life, uh, you figured this out. There's not really a lot in there about his childhood, and in fact, one of the few stories that we do have from his childhood is that at one point, Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. 
They literally lost the son of God. You guys, I have lost track of my kids for all of about 30 seconds at a time. I like to call it misplaced my kids for like 30 seconds at a time. And the panic, as any parent can attest to, because this happens more frequently than we would like to admit, the panic that goes through your body in those moments is almost unbearable. But can you imagine losing God's son? Can you imagine what that conversation would have gone like? So God, uh, we can't find him. Can't find who? Uh, we can't find uh, Jesus. You lost my son? No, no, we wouldn't call it lost. Uh, we're tracking him down. We, we think we're going to be able to find him, but we were thinking, I don't know, you have that whole like omnipresent thing going, right? And so maybe, I don't know, tap into that as like an 11 thing from Stranger Things. We like blindfold you and like you zero in, but whatever we got to do, if you can kind of help us out, that'd be great. But Alas, if you read a little bit farther and you get into these letters in particular that a guy by the name of Paul wrote, Paul wrote better than half of the New Testament, in fact, which is the second half of this book that we call the Bible. And he wrote these letters to these early Christian churches that were popping up all over the ancient Mediterranean world. And he finally kind of gives us some very direct advice as it relates to families, specifically in the book of Ephesians. He has this to say, he says, children, so all you children, there's some children in here. In fact, actually all of you are children by virtue of the fact that you're here. So he has this to say, he says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. And we've probably all heard those words before. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, us parents, we love verses like this, right? Because now we have something tangible that we can point to and say, see kids, I told you that you have to listen to me. It is in the B-I-B-L-E. In his letter to the early church, Colossians, he writes this. He says, wives, it's all the message for all you wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Now, I've alluded to this before. Us husbands, we love these verses. And in fact, what we see is that this is a pretty common pattern throughout his letters. And in fact, throughout Jesus' teachings, this idea that wives, you are to submit to your husbands. And, and us husbands, we can have this tendency to kind of shove this into our wives' faces like, dang right, you have to do our bidding. You have to do everything that we say. Well, not so much. There are commands in there for the husbands as well. It continues. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, he didn't leave us out. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Now, now, perhaps to all of us, depending on what, what your family life was like growing up, depending on how your parents modeled this to you, depending on maybe what your marriage looks like e even right now, th this perhaps, and I would think maybe sounds like a given, this idea that we wouldn't treat our wives harshly, that we would love our wives. But I'm telling you, back in this first century audience that would initially been reading this, to, to, to the people that Jesus would have been advocating this towards, this was something entirely new. This was a brand new concept. The, the, the men back at this point in history, they, they treated basically everything harshly. They treated their livestock harshly. They treated their kids harshly. They treated the people they did business with harshly. They, 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 they treated their servants and their slaves harshly. And they certainly treated their wives harshly. This was a departure from the norm. You, you could divorce your wife back at this point in history for literally any reason that you saw fit. But wives, there was no opportunity to divorce your husband. I've said this before, and I think perhaps people have thought that I, I'm kidding, but I'm actually being dead serious. This is one of the reasons that I really feel that every woman should be a Jesus follower. J Jesus w was fighting for the rights of women back at a point in history when nobody was speaking of up for women. He, he was placing them on a pedestal at a time when nobody was saying, hey, you ought to respect your wife. You ought to respect women. At a time in history when women had virtually no rights. He, he looked at these women and said, no, 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 no that, that's not how this works. You are a daughter of the most high God. You have every bit as much value as the man that stands to your left or the man that stands to your right. 
He continues, he says, fathers, so all you dads listen to this. He says, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Now, as mentioned, I, I've only been a dad for a little bit over three years now. Uh, and man, when, when I look at these words right here, when I look at this command, I, I'm not sure that there is an imperative that I have violated more than this. And what's worse is that I don't think the vast majority of the time it's really been intentional. As parents, and particularly dads, it's not an accident that Paul is specifically addressing the fathers right here. Our words and our actions and our nonverbals, they hold so much weight. Our size, our unwillingness to put our phones down, our long work hours, our nonverbals, our quick tempers, our lack of patience has this unique ability to discourage and to frustrate our kids. Moms, your actions obviously mean something, right? But, but your actions, your words, your nonverbals, they weigh about 25 pounds. Dads, your words, your actions, your nonverbals, they weigh about 500 pounds, a mom and a dad could literally say the exact same thing in the exact same tone, and it feels so much different coming from dad, both in a positive and in a negative sense. And it's why right here he's specifically addressing the fathers. Peter was another guy that spent a ton of time with, with Jesus in the flesh, and he has this to say. It says, husbands, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and his heirs, and heirs is an important word, with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now again, we read things like this, and it doesn't sound that profound. It, it seems like pretty common sense, but again, to this first century audience, this was a new idea. This idea that you would be considerate of your wife's opinions, that you would consider your wife's feelings, that you would consider her thoughts, that that was a new way of thinking. This idea that, that Jesus would advocate for so frequently to treat your marriage as a submission competition where you constantly defer to your bride, where you constantly put your need, her needs, her desires ahead of your own, had this unique ability to completely transform marriages and by the way, still does today. And the reason that he says that we ought to do that is because she is an heir. And when he says this, he's not talking about she's going to get some land or she's going to get some money or she's going to get some possessions when that person passes away. No, he's talking about what Christ did for literally every single person in this room, that we are actually heirs to the kingdom of God, that Jesus died just as much for your wife as he did for you. That God does not look at anyone and say, that person's more valuable than you. That person is less valuable than you. The person that sits to your right or the person that sits to your left is no more or no less valuable than you are. And, and so in summary, here's kind of everything that we kind of capture there. And it's a lot of the same message if you read these things. So this is kind of the, the biblical advice here for our marriages that Jesus gives us. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, Stop driving your kids nuts, right? Don't irritate your kids. All right, that, that's it. Y'all can go home because that's basically what, what we find in there. But, but, but seriously, he, here's kind of the rub here, and, and here's really what, what I want to beat into our brains this morning, and I'm convinced that God gave me this week because it's so much more intelligent than anything that I could come up with. So if you've been zoning out, bring it in here for just a couple minutes. Although this list right here is, is pretty simple, honestly, I, I, although it's, it's, it's not all that profound, I don't know if you are sitting here going, oh my gosh, I mean, this is revelational stuff. It is, as any of you who are in a relationship know, as any of you parents know, 
is far from easy. Never confuse simplicity with ease. And because this isn't easy, and because being an amazing parent or an incredible spouse or a thoughtful and loving boyfriend or a thoughtful and loving girlfriend is not easy, for the remainder of your lives, all of us, we're going to constantly butt up against this tension of do I compromise or do I confirm? Do, do, do I compromise or do I confirm? Do I compromise or do I uphold? Do, do I keep the bar high? knowing that absolutely, unequivocally, I'm going to fall short? Or, or do I bring that bar down to a more palatable level so I'm not constantly reminded of my shortcomings? And, and the tension really here is this, is that if you don't compromise, and you choose this, this harder path of confirming, you choose that harder path of upholding, you are going to continually fail. You are going to constantly and everlastingly be, rep be reminded of those shortcomings. Think about that, in fact. It's why we compromise, because we are tired of failing. We are tired of falling short. We are tired of screwing up. And so what do we do? We lower the bar a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, until we're eventually able to keep the standard. See, when the ideal is hard to attain, it's so tempting to just lower the bar and thus redefine the ideal. But, but I want you to think about that for a second. Think of how sick that is. Ch change the bar so that you feel better as a husband, so that you feel better as a wife, so that you feel better as a mother, so that you feel better as a daughter, so that you feel better as a brother, so that you feel better as a dad. That is me-centered. And that's certainly not love. That's not asking what is best for others. That's asking what is best for me. Now, the reason that I happen to think that that's a little bit of an issue, we can kind of direct our attention to one of these passages that I think you could argue, is some of the best parenting, family, relationship advice on the planet. And it's been preserved for us here for, for thousands and thousands of years. We find it actually in the book of John, and it's the very words of Jesus. Now, I don't know where everybody sitting here today finds themselves on this whole faith journey, but I take the words of Jesus really, really seriously personally because Jesus predicted his own death, and then he predicted his own resurrection, and then he pulled it off. So when somebody pulls off those kind of things, again, their words just mean a little bit more to me. And so we have some of his very words preserved for us, again, in the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four books that document, again, Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. If you've never dove into scripture before, as was mentioned last week, we have these free Bibles in the back every single week. Grab one of those Bibles, take one of them, and start off reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just, just read about the historical account of Jesus' life. But here in the book of John, in the 15th chapter, it says this. Again, Jesus' words. This is my commandment. And keep in mind that this was a new commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. To, to which his original audience would have thought to themselves, well, how in the heck have you shown your love to us? I mean, what are you referring to? And he said, I'm glad you asked. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know exactly what he was talking about. Because it has now happened. He, he died. He literally laid down his life for his friends, for all of you, for the benefit of us. But to that original audience, they're going, what in the heck are you talking about? 
Like you, you want us to die for each other? He's like, no, no, no. I, I am about to do, I am about to demonstrate the greatest act of love that this world has ever and will ever see. I'm gonna show you love like you have never seen before. When I die for people that I'm not even sure are going to be receptive of my love. He continues, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. And we've heard this before, right? Talk is cheap. He's like, you can say that you believe this stuff all you want, but until I, I see it demonstrating some type of change in your life, I don't really buy it. I no longer call you slaves because a master does, does not confide in his slaves. So often, it's, it's really easy for us to think about God as this God, you know, he's up in heaven and he's got this giant magnifying glass and he's trying to zap us and he's trying to get us to follow these rules and you better do this or you're gonna be in trouble. And oh, it's so far from that. And we see this over and over again from, from the lips of Jesus himself. He goes, I, I don't consider you servants. I don't consider you all the way down here. There's me, you know, lofty me, God. And, and then it's all of you. He says, no, no, I, I brought myself down to your level because I love you so much. I care about you so much. I count you as a co-heir to the kingdom of God, and I have not withheld anything from you. Now you are my friend, since I have told you everything the Father told me. Isn't that incredible that we have a God that cares about us so much that he held nothing close to the chest? That there was nothing, he said, I'm gonna tell him 99%, but this is, this is just for me, just in case this doesn't work out. No, he, he gave us everything, up to and including his life. Paid the penalty on a cross again for your sins, for your mistakes, again, knowing that there was a really great chance that a lot of people would never receive that gift. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I, I'm confident there are people here today that maybe the only reason you're here today is that you just need to let those two lines sink in. God chose you. That there was nothing that any of us did that compelled God to send his son down to this earth to die for you. He just chose to do it. And why would he do that? Because he places such tremendous value on every single one of you. Because he is a God that is love. Because he loves you so much. That there is nothing that any of you can do to get God to love you more. And there is nothing that any of you can do to get God to love you less. He already chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command. And he sums it all up. He's like, just in case you weren't paying attention, just in case you have like some of you, maybe an attention span of all of 10 seconds. He's like, I'm gonna make this really, really simple. Three words, love each other. That's it. Love each other. Love each other in the same way that I showed my love for you. Well, how'd you do that? Oh yeah, you, you died for me. When you lower the bar, when we compromise, and thus we redefine the ideal, the, the only person that that's good for is you. And it's not even good for you in the long term. It's good for you in the here and in the now. And that's obviously the complete opposite of what Jesus did for you. He died for you. You guys, when Jesus died on that cross for us, that wasn't what was best for him. There was no benefit to Jesus in that moment as he took on the weight of the sin of the world, as he suffered this excruciating death on a cross. No benefit to him whatsoever. It was what was best for you. It was what was best for me. When we compromise, when we lower that bar over, over fear of failure, it hurts the very people that we're closest to and in the long run hurts you. 
Uh, I was standing on this stage in the first service, and I, I have something written down here, like this, this practical example of this, and I felt like God really, in the moment, was like, nope, go this direction with it, and so I'll, I'll share the same thing that I shared in the first service and not what I wrote down. Um, one of the most uh, common, and I'm not just saying this, this is almost a weekly thing, where I, I get emails, I get a phone call, I get a text from a frantic parent uh, and their child, usually a college-age son, a college-age daughter, has gone off to school, and wouldn't you know it, despite their maybe best efforts growing up in that household, the, the, the child has chosen to not walk in such a way that maybe would reflect what they would have desired. They, they, they find out that, oh my goodness, my, my son, my daughter's been at school for two years and they've never gone to church. My, my son, my daughter does not have any relationship with Jesus, and they're this panic, and I don't know why they think I'm going to be able to somehow solve that, but they're like, will you meet with her? Will you meet with him? And, and get them kind of on the, the straight and narrow, and I'm like, I'm really blunt with these couples, if I'm honest, and I'm like, okay, for the first 18 years of, of your child's life, you, you modeled to them that church, that Jesus was the thing you did when you don't have anything else going on, and guess what? They have stuff going on now, so why would you think that they would be interested in Jesus? That's what you modeled for them. Throughout their young lives, you had this opportunity to, to do I compromise or do I confirm? And again, please don't let me like, hear me say this. I am not anti-vacation. I am not anti-building memories. But we see this pretty loud and clear in the summer months. There's times where you're legitimately on vacation, but there's also those other times when you're sitting at home and you talk yourself out of it and you have that and you don't necessarily ask it in those terms, but it's compromise or confirm, compromise or confirm and you compromise all the time and you compromise too much. Don't be surprised when your kid, when your child is going through that same sort of crisis. It's what was modeled to them. Our actions obviously speak far louder than words. Do not be so naive to look at these as isolated incidents. These are fork-in-the-road moments where we are modeling to our children. Okay, am I going to compromise or am I going to confirm? I believe these decisions build and break relationships, build and break marriages, build and break relationships with our children, with our families. And so my challenge to all of you today because every single one of us is a part of a family at some level. Some of you have kids, some of you know, you are, have siblings, some of you are in a relationship, some of you are married, we, we all have parents, some of those parents are alive, others of us, those, those parents have since passed, and, and in this family dynamic, Jesus gives us this very clear imperative that I think is worth passing along to you. Love each other in the same way Jesus loves you. What does love require of you? Love each other in the same way that Jesus loves you. And yes, this is simple, but it is so far from easy. And remember that Jesus' love extended beyond words. His love extended beyond trivial actions because he laid down his life for you. So at every turn, in every situation with our parents, with our spouses, with our children, with our siblings, Let's ask this question, what is best for you? What is best for you, my bride? What is best for you, my husband? What is best for you, my son? What is best for you, my daughter? What's best for you, mom? What's best for you, dad? And oh my gosh, but if we, if we do what's best for him, that, that's gonna kind of be a lot of work. But oh my gosh, if we do that, that's, that's gonna kind of be inconvenient. If I do that, I'm not gonna be the cool high school parent anymore. But, but what is best for you? See, see, compromise 
is best for me in the here and the now. Confirming is, is always best for you. It's always best for them, now and later. Compromise is obsessed with the short term. Confirming only cares about the end game. And remember that Jesus asked this question before he died for you. Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, this question, undeniably, will make us better parents. It'll make us better spouses. It'll make us better siblings. Our families will absolutely be stronger as a result if we continually practice this idea of what is best for you, not what's best for me, but what is best for you. Now, I didn't want to get off the stage without making this super, super practical. Uh, I, I promise this is the part of the talk and the only part of the talk that, that comes even a little bit from my brain, but that's not really even fair. I probably stole these things from somebody else. I wanted to give you just five really, really practical tools uh, in, in order to make this a reality, how we can actually practice this idea of, okay, what is best for you? And so the first thing I, I wrote down is give more of your time. Give more of your uh, time. None of you are going to get to the end of your life and go, gosh, dang it, I wish I wouldn't have given my kids so much time. What a, what a terrible mistake. You know, I really wish that I wouldn't have gone on as many dates with, with my wife, as many dates with my husband. What a terrible decision. You're only going to wish that you gave more time to your family. And I totally get it. I know what it's like to be at work at 5.30, at 6 o'clock, and it turns into 7, and it turns into 8, and you think, I just got to get it done, I got to get it done, I got to get it done. But all of you experience that you don't actually get it done in, in those times where you choose to go home, wouldn't you know it, it still ends up actually getting done? Isn't that kind of a magical experience, how that works? Give more of your time. You'll never regret that. Number two, designate sleep time for your phones. Um, as has been mentioned, uh, that I've, I've said this many, many times, uh, I'm not anti-phone. I'm not anti-smartphone. I'm not like, you know, burn your iPhone and get yourself, you know, Boost Mobile and a flip phone. Like, that's, that's not my prerogative at all. In fact, I, I really appreciate the luxuries that, that my smartphone provides for me. Uh, but as we have all experienced, if you don't take ownership of your phone, it will take ownership of you. If you don't put very practical steps in place, you will find yourself, as we have all again experienced, mindlessly sitting on the phone and just scrolling through stuff while lives are literally happening right in front of us. And so I would really advocate, and this is something again that, that I practice and a good habit, and maybe it should be even more, but I practice daily, I practice weekly, and I practice monthly time where, where I give my phone a, a break. What that looks like practically is when I get home from work, I go and I take my phone and I put it on the nightstand. And I try to be really, really intentional about not looking uh, at that phone in, until my kids go to bed. And then it's not like, okay, kids are gone to bed now, and now it's time to scroll through Facebook for two hours. No, it's like double check, make sure there's nothing super important that happened, and then it's time for, for time with my bride. We have, again, all experienced how, how just our phones can rob us of experiencing life. Uh, then on top of that, do weekly. You all work, you know, probably, you know, eight-hour days on average. Uh, on that day off, wherever that falls for you, Give your phone an eight-hour break. Give, yourself a, your, give your phone a full workday's worth of break. You, you would be so shocked. You'd be amazed but by how much more present you are when you literally just don't have your phone in your pocket. And, you're, and you will do that at first. You'll be like, oh my gosh, did I? Oh no, I just left it at home. What a good idea. And then monthly. I, I would encourage you to practice one day a month where literally the entire day for a 24-hour period, you do not pick up that device. And again, watch how that forces you to be more engaged with your family. The third thing, date. Date, 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 date. Uh, my, my wife and I, uh, we, we have uh, a lot of meals and, you know, we get to know a, a lot of people, you know, that, that go to this church. And one of the things that I kind of continue to be taken aback by, and, and maybe it's something I took for granted growing up is how my parents modeled it, but um, 
I, I talk to so many couples that literally have not been on dates in two, three, four, five years. Like as soon as the kids came into the mix, uh, the dates went bye-bye. Um, you guys, I, I, I don't know how you're going to grow in your relationship if you're not intentionally dating your spouse. I know it's hard to make sitters, find sitters. I know that it requires a certain level of financial sacrifice. But if you're not investing in your marriage, your, inve- your marriage is just going to survive rather than thrive. Obviously, our goal for our marriage was not that we would say, I do, and then it would just kind of head on this steady decline. Instead, that it would continue to get better 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And that's not going to happen unless you date your spouse. And then the second part of that, and the reason I didn't just write date your spouse, is because for all you dads out there, you ought to be dating your daughters too, particularly if you have daughters. If you're not dating your daughter, how in the heck is she going to know what the standard is when when the 16-year-old, when the 17-year-old, when the 18-year-old wants to take her on a date? What, what is she going to have to compare that to? I have a friend that, that has uh, three daughters. One uh, is in, co- two are in college now. One is in high school and they're, all three of them are, are bombshells and these just beautiful girls inside and out. And he has done such a good job. He'll joke around and be like, if there's one thing that I've gotten right in my life, it's been dating my daughters. And, and one of the things that he practices in, in his household is he says, he tries to say yes to everything. His daughters want to dye their hair pink. He's like, I don't care. Go ahead, dye your hair pink. You, you want to go do, okay, that's fine. Because he just trusts that they're going to make the right decisions. And so he allowed them to date as early as they wanted to date. And, and one of the reasons that, that he was okay with his 14-year-old daughter going on a date, he's like, good luck to that guy. She is going to come back and be like, dad, you treat me way better than that dude treats me. He didn't even open a door. He, he didn't even pay for the meal. If your daughter does not have that to compare it to, what is the standard that she is butting up against. You have to date your daughters. And I would advocate for both of those things. I hope that that's happening at least every other week. I'm tempted to say every week, but I think some of you, you've gotten so far out of the dating rut that if I said every week, you just throw the whole thing to the side and be like, that's impossible. So I'm saying every other week. Every other week is possible. Fourth thing, uh, create new experiences. It's so easy to get stuck in and the same old, same in and same old, day in and day out. Create new experiences for your kids. Create new experiences for your family. Mix it up. Some of those ideas are going to fail. Some of those experiences are going to be terrible. I have all these terrible experiences to point to growing up because my parents were always trying something new. But we have all these incredible memories of all these different things, and I'm so thankful for that. Uh, in just a little bit, Taylor's going to jump back up here, our kids director, and uh, for all of you parents, you're going to get this bucket today, this bucket list of, of all these really practical tools to take with you and make this last month of the summer the best month yet, and I'm excited for that. Uh, and then the last thing I wrote down was spend time with Jesus. Um, I think this is for all of us, and, and I didn't just throw this in here because it was like, okay, crud, I got to get something with Jesus in there. Uh, I really, really believe in this because I think that, that really living this idea out of, of okay, well, what can I do to serve you? What can I practically do to put you ahead of myself? I think if you're trying to do that on your own accord, it's only going to last for so long. I think this is one of those things that that has to be an outpouring of what God, of what Jesus is doing in your life. And without a growing relationship with Jesus in your life, that this isn't going to be something that feels like a joy. That this is going to feel like like this thing that you have to muster up and it's going to be hard and you're going to keep finding yourself going the other direction. But if you have that growing relationship with Jesus, particularly you dads, particularly you husbands, you are called to lead your household. Without that growing relationship with Jesus, good luck. Other things are going to continue to take center stage. So at every turn, what is best for you? Not what's best for me, but what is best for you? What does love require of me? I'm telling you, that that right there has the ability to transform families.